Um, hey, hey, son of a bitch. Yeah, g'day. How's it going? This is uh, Vincent Max here. We're back, and we're back with another international guest. Yeah, this is a bit of a first for the Son of a Pitch podcast. We had uh, we had somebody reach out to us. We did. I, I mean, I didn't know we had that kind of pull, Max. I, I think it's probably going to be a one-off. I, I don't think it's going to happen again, so we need to cherish this moment, Vince, that somebody wanted to be on our show. Somebody out there actually likes us. But um, we interviewed David Bates, who's the CEO of Bokeh, a boutique agency in San Francisco who works with all the major tech giants, and it was just a really fun, awesome chat. It was, and that's Bokeh with a B-O-K-E-H, not Bokeh as in a bouquet of roses. And the reason why that is is because he runs an agency that specializes in content, uh, video Video production, production, that kind of stuff, right? Which is kind of an interesting thing for us because we've just been talking to traditional agency strategists and creatives so far. Yeah, and he has a background. Uh, he, he worked for uh, Google on Google Maps, and so he's been tech side, um, uh, he's more of like film content side. So super interesting chat. He was an awesome dude. Does a great impression of an old Jewish lady, but I'll let you uh, hear that one for yourself. The old Jewish lady there's, is his mother. It does yeah. feel like a bit of a Seinfeld uh, skit almost. Yeah. There's, uh, there's a the Bernie end. Sanders impression somewhere deep yes. within this ep too, so at, listen out to that. The arms were flailing at the side like the gorilla uh, yeah. that, that uh, Bernie Sanders does uh, impersonate every now and then. But... Um, I think what's really good about this episode is that Mm. it gives the perspective of the tech side of things, right? Which is encroaching on the agency landscape at the moment. We're all feeling the pressure of the consultancies and the big tech groups. Oh, Um, we ever. So, like, to get to know what it's like actually working for these people and hearing their kind of mindset, because he is a very different person to most. Yeah, but he's super down to earth. California dude, um, really chill. Was super fu- super fun to talk to, and 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 you know what? He had some he had some great insights. Whether you're working for a, a big tech company or you're working for a nimble startup, just the power of being down to earth and the power of being genuinely curious about someone else's business can pay huge dividends. But we won't spoil too much more than that. Listen to the episode; it's great. Guess we're going to the ad read now, Vince. Yeah, so Miami Ad School, that's the thing that you should all do, uh, especially if you want to get ahead in your careers because the strategic boot camp has to be one of the most rewarding experiences uh, of your life. Yeah, Miami Ad School offer a great range of great range of courses and boot camps. Um, Creative Planning Boot Camp is one of them that you can do all over the world. And because, you know, your friends at the Son of a Pitch podcast, we look out for you guys. Uh and if, you, and if you drop us an email at podcastsoap at gmail.com, we will waive the application fee. What um, was that, Max? That's podcastsoap at gmail.com. Still haven't bought the business handle yet. We're working on it, but the Gmail is serving us well, so we're going to stick with Gmail for now. That's it. Um, and into the foreseeable future. We'll have to track someone down at GoDaddy eventually and, uh, and get our domain back. Maybe that's a campaign for the future, Max. Does somebody have the son of a pitch domain? They do. Oh. We need to hunt him down. That's that's one campaign. That's a brief in the works. Anyway, back to it. Uh, just go and join up. Like It's a thing that you need to do. Here's the podcast. It's fucking awesome. Um, David Bates is great. Enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, son of a pitch. Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started uh, Give us some complex problems So let's see how you can solve it Tune in with some Aussies I bet you can't resist yeah, yeah, Get it hyped This is Son of a Pitch 
chilling. So David Bates, well, welcome to the the Son of a Pitch podcast, my friend. Thank you for having me, guys. It's uh, great to meet you. Thank you for waking up so early in the morning, your time. That's <laughs> okay. It's it's not that early. I mean, uh, what, what what have we got? Like, uh, it's pretty early for me. Yeah, yeah. you yeah. may be getting a little groggy, Vince and Max today in your ear holes, but that's okay. You may know this about koalas. We sleep uh, pretty much 18 hours a day anyway. So, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, it, and, and they're stoned constantly. Yeah, so you've got us at our prime moment. Um, so, David, um, yeah. a, a lot of people will be noticing the accent straight away because we've had most, most Australians, I guess, on the podcast. And even people overseas that we've had on the podcast have been Australian. Um, so, can you tell us who are you, where are you from, and what is your story? Who am I, where am I from, and what is my story? Well, I am, uh, my name is David Bates. I am the CEO and founder of Bokeh, a creative agency that's based in San Francisco. Uh, My story is I come from a film background. I have no bit of Australian in me. Uh, (laughs) I do have some Australian family, though, fun fact. Oh, wow, no way. Uh, They live in Sydney and Melbourne. And uh, I actually know how to pronounce that city the correct way, not Melbourne or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I come from a, a non-traditional background when it comes to advertising. I never worked uh, really internally for an internal marketing uh, company. I never worked for an advertising agency before starting my own agency. Um, I was a film student. I was a film student that just wanted to figure out a way to keep staying active and, and staying creative and and sort of found my way into sort of the corporate environment as a content producer um, with a team that had no idea what that meant at Google. And suddenly like that really opened up my eyes and opened up my world to the needs of content, but also the types of relation like relationships they were having with agencies and gave me the idea that like, you know what, I could do this better. Yeah. How did you go from studying film to landing a gig at Google? Uh, well, technically, I, I, I went from studying film to working behind a genius bar at an Apple store to oh, wow. landing a gig at Google. So, so you are a certified genius then? First uh, genius no, of the pod. No, I would not. We, we, it's not a certified genius. It's a, a certified bullshitter, if anything. Because <laughs> your whole job there is just, you know... People come into that store, right, with a problem with their phone or a problem with their device. And really what that is, is that that's like their, their relationship with the brand in crisis, right? And so a big part of our job is almost to reinforce the relationship between them and Apple. We may not necessarily be able to fix their problem like during that session, but our main goal is to find a way for them to essentially not blame Apple. And... Uh, And to reinforce that relationship with them, right? So like the process, in a sense, was kind of a good good opportunity to really learn how to talk to people and learn how to talk to people on their language, like dealing with people in in sort of a sense of a crisis. And that's what people's phones have become, right? Such a personal thing. Like uh, I'm dealing with people... There were cases at the Genius Bar where, where the person kept getting uh, dick pics from their ex. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, I can't really stop this. You could block the number. You know? <laughs> um, 
there's there's stories there, but that taught me how to learn people. And then there was it was really a uh, a run of a luck opportunity where Google Maps. There's cycles in marketing, and 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 maybe people have mentioned this before, but there's cycles, or you've seen it, where you know an advertiser, a company, they'll work with an agency of record. But then their teams, when, when things are moving so fast, they start to work with other agencies. They start to notice how much money they're spending externally on agencies. They decide, you know what, let's build out our own studio. Then they start to build out our, their own studio. They build it and bring everything internal, right? Then that studio's bandwidth gets taken up. They start working externally with agencies again. They start noticing, why do we have our own studio and we're paying outside? Let's just disband the internal studio. And it's a cycle that goes like around and around and around. And Google Maps was kind of going through this where they were noticing that the bandwidth of Studio G, their internal like creative studio, uh, was running thin. And so they just got frustrated and they decided, you know what, let's just bring on a content producer. And I happened to find that opportunity. I happened to be able to apply for it. I went through the, the Google interview questions that are, that are just kind of silly. Yeah. Tell uh, us about yeah, that. Run what, what, what was that process like? They, just, they asked me to describe, uh, how to tie, um, tie your shoes and to describe an orange some of those famous sort of questions. Oh, what were your answers? Uh, I mean, you know, an orange has, you know, a, it, it's a, um, it's a spherical object with sort of a hue that lands a pigmentation that lands between reddish and yellowish in terms of color. And I don't know what the heck Eros I said, <laughs> but they loved it. Uh, they loved it. I got hired and they didn't know what, exactly what they were hiring for. <laughs> And like this so, dude can describe oranges super well. <laughs> I don't know what other skills he has, but that orange describing ability off the charts. Oh, I get it though, right? It's like, it's the user experience um, CX side of things. You've got to be really simple, direct, know how to get across directions like really well. I mean, for Google Maps, that would have been invaluable. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is testing your ability to, to conceptualize and solve problems in the moment. Right. <clears throat> and, yeah. uh, and so they hired me on, but I was given, and at the time I was only 23 years old, and I was given just an incredible amount of, of power and freedom as a 23-year-old in this position to start to hire other people under me to kind of build out our own little internal division within Google Maps. Uh, and I discovered, I discovered two things. One, I, I discovered what the relationship was like with agencies because I began to interface with the geo-marketing team and interface with agencies. And because I had this production background, I could call bullshit on a lot of things, right? Yeah. And what I found is like, I grew very tired a lot of time with just how disconnected it was between myself and the creatives we were working with agency side. I would be communicating with account managers and, and account executives to project managers, to producers, and just like, man, I just need to make a title change just literally sit me next to the designer we can make yeah. it an hour you know yeah yeah um and so i i got to see those sort of inefficiencies i also saw that like the types of content needs that google was just beginning to talk about right like i was there at a time where we were still debating whether or not they needed an instagram um so I was anticipating the type of content and the speed in which that content needed to be developed. And the agencies we were working with weren't really 
built for that. So that was one of the first big discoveries. The second big discovery is that I could have an, a corporation pay for my travel if right. I came up with that idea. <laughs> a great discovery. As a 23-year-old as a who had never left the country before, that was just like an eye-opening thing. And ever since, we've been on the go. Well, when they opened the book up for you, what, what, where were the first places that you thought that you wanted to go? Was it, was it stuff that you needed to do for Google or did you have some selfish spots that you wanted to check out? I mean, it's a combination. It's a combination of both, right? Where it's just like, you know, I've never been to Europe. I want to be to Europe. Oh, we're working, you know, let's sell Google, Google Maps. We need to figure out a B2B campaign for selling maps to local businesses in Europe. Uh, it's going to be important for us to do it in their local language. So why don't we just put together like a European like tour? We'll go to England and Spain and France and Italy and Germany and Switzerland. And we'll just interview small businesses that have had done indoor mapping. And, you know, then I'm paying for hostels on Google's dollar. Uh, <laughs> even though I get the hotel, but I've never done the hostel experience. So Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just go check out Vanuatu. Vanuatu is a super fast-growing market for Google, right? Sure, yeah. why not? Let's go to Vanuatu. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to I go back on something you touched on just a, a bit earlier about managing people at 23 and hiring people. What was that process like? And do you have any tips on uh, how to manage people when, uh, when you're so young yourself? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, do you want tips? Looking back in retrospect, so at the time at Google, like the people that I was hiring and, and what I was doing, I was hiring a lot of contractors because I started to build out a, a um, what I started noticing about the type of content that we need to produce for social and online is like we don't need a heavy degree of, of sort of like uh, production infrastructure for this content. A lot of it, if you, you know, as somebody that could look at the image and read it is, just putting a DSLR camera on like a slider and moving it slow and getting that sort of cinematic effect. And so what I realized is instead of hiring an agency who wants to sort of like posture or maybe build up a production, like I just need a couple of, you know, strong, talented videographer editors, sort of like predator types. And so my strategy there was just kind of hiring for those sort of hungry young people who would be like allured by the opportunity to just travel the world. And, and so that's yeah. what I did. And I sent them to the Arctic and I sent them to India and I sent them to, uh, I sent them to the Emirates and to Jordan. And one of them uh, got to meet the, um, the, one of the princesses or the queen of, of Jordan. Wow. wow. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Did one of them just never come back? You just sent him off and he just, he just went on a trip of his own? You know, funny thing is I almost lost one of them uh, on a <laughs> uh, Tunisia and then like, you know, him and his, I don't know, he, he has a story, but there was an ISIS thing in Tunisia and it was just, oh, like, wow. and it, it was, it was all bad news. I mean, he eventually went on, he, he came home, he came home, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> So, so the, my, my strategy as a 23-year-old was really just like hire people that you can trust, hire your friends and, and things like that. Now, my advice going back and looking back, even on how I would hire for my own agency is, is much different, right? Um, 
because like you learn a lot in the process. But at the time, as a 23-year-old managing people, I think the biggest thing is since I was still trying to figure it out myself, I needed people that, you know, would forgive me trying to figure it out because they were figuring it out themselves too. And so it was a whole bunch of young creatives who were just trying to get shit done. That's really interesting. Now, there was some nomenclature that you used before, predator types. Is that what you said? Predator types? What does that mean? Predator. It's, it's sort of the combination of a producer, content producer, and an editor. Somebody who literally knows oh. how to Somebody who can both... Um, who can both like arrange the shoot and get behind the camera and then edit it, right? It's an all-in-one. All right, so Google Maps, that, that would have been like a pretty crazy experience. And I, I kind of feel like you must have matured very quickly throughout that process. Um, yes, no? Uh, it- I mean, I, I mean I, yes, yeah, it, it matured me. It, it showed me a lot of what the content needs are, both operational operationally and internally as well as for marketing um and it showed me a lot uh it was very humbling i think it was most humbling leaving google because what you realize is not every brand that you work with has the types of budgets or the ability to just spend lavishly on things that are meant to just raise brand equity as a google right like google is like let's record a video in india because we can Right. For me, I'm like, yeah, fuck, let's do it. Like, (laughs) (laughs) not complaining. But but then immediately afterwards, immediately afterwards, uh, or upon leaving Google, I realized like it's really hard uh, to convince people to just send you to India if there's not a really strategic or creative reason for it. Um, You know, funny story. I, I worked one of our early clients is this this startup called Class Dojo. Uh, they're an incredible startup based in San Francisco. They're founded by a couple of Brits who, who were really into education. Um, and they're feature, I think they're, they have a presence in 197 countries around the world. They're in, in 95% of cl- like, uh, schools in the United States. They're really kind of a social media that connects, um, that connects parents and teachers and students. And wow. we did a... Jesus. <laughs> uh, we did a uh, campaign for them, and I came up with a creative that sent us to Alaska um, because I wanted to go to Alaska. And, and to yeah. this day, like, the CEO will give me shit because he's just like, there was absolutely no reason to send you to Alaska. <laughs> we came up with this creative where at the time they were doing things with, with behavior management for students. And so I'm just like, you know, the, the types of uh, things that can cause different behaviors in students are going to differ by where they live. You know, like the kid who's raised in Alaska where part of the year, the sun doesn't rise till 10 in the morning is going to have a different experience than the kid uh, in San Francisco. Right. So we should go to Alaska. And at the time they're like, yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) (laughs) They're just like, there was no point. They're just kids in a classroom. Yeah. <laughs> Not much difference. Um, David, I, I guess the thing that, that separates you from most of the guests we've had is that you're so immersed in the startup culture of you know, San Francisco and you get to work with these eccentric companies who've got all this VC money and just want just to wanna splurge. Um, do you, how do you think the, um, the agency scene in San Francisco differs to something like maybe like a Sydney or, or a New York? Um, well, I mean, I, 
I would say that, I mean, I think the agency scene in general is, is changing across the board, right? I mean, yeah. I think culturally San Francisco, and I don't know how it is in Sydney um, when it comes to agency, but there's not a, culturally in San Francisco, it's a bit more laid back and relaxed than sort of the interactions that I have with agencies or, or even companies in, in sort of the East Coast of the United States, yeah. right? So, so there's sort of that California vibe that inherently sort of separates us. I think being in the Bay Area, we're seeing a lot of, and I think across the board, you're seeing a lot of mid-size and boutique agencies start to come up and, and, and you're seeing companies uh, start to favor working with smaller, more, um, uh, uh, more specific or, or um, uh, professional, like, agencies that really have a pure focus as opposed to an all-in-one sort of agency of record. And you're seeing sort of the people veer that direction. And that's kind of the opportunity in the market that, that allowed Bokeh to, to grow, right? In, in every sense, every marketer wanted to have their own agency to go to or their own small set of agencies as opposed to relying on the largest um, agency. Um, we're seeing a lot of, of the large agencies try to adapt the type of agility or, or nimbleness that, that we have as a smaller agency um, in terms of like building the internal resources to an extent where they can, they can move or pivot as quickly as us. But it's still hard because they, they have more overhead and they have more of a tradition of posturing than, than we do. Um, I think, you know, what is, what is interesting is we're trying to figure out how do we scale nimbleness? How do we scale the type of customer interaction and relationship that is very much core to how we do things? And it, it's where I feel we're most differentiated from, from other agencies, um, especially the larger ones that work with the same caliber of brands that we do are. But uh, I don't know if that answers your question specifically. I think kind of agency culture is somewhat agency culture, yeah. but I think what yeah. you're seeing is smaller agencies, boutique agencies really start to flourish and try to, to kind of wrangle. You're seeing larger agencies try to uh, kind of figure out how they can fit in with uh, a, a marketplace that needs content and needs advertising much faster, much more nimbler and, and where the quality standard doesn't necessarily need to be as high. I mean, high, I mean, we live in the age of TikTok and GIFs and, and memes, yeah. right? Like, like you don't need like a world-class photographer to be able to do a world-class campaign anymore. No, you touched on really something really interesting about scaling nimbleness. And even before in our conversation, when you, when you were talking about being, um, uh, an, an editor um, and you wanted to change a title, you had to talk to like three different people at an agency. Um, so how have you gone about scaling nimbleness at your age, at your agency? And um, what are, what are your tips to, to staying nimble in you know the world of new media? Um, I think, I think the first thing is realizing that you do need to have a core uh, team that is in house that's able to execute. And for us, that means having some editorial, having some motion design and design in-house, right? That's going to allow us, especially on things that are quick turnaround, um, to, to really work with a client, work next to a client, or what we, we like to call our clients partners, work next to a partner. Because um, sometimes you just need to iterate really quickly. Sometimes you need to make a quick revision and you don't have time to do so over the course of days. So I think there is sort of a blend, having a blended model that combines some production uh, uh, capability 
um, with sort of creative development capability is very important. Uh, the rest of the way is sort of guessing and, and at least for me has been a process of guessing and checking uh, this entire time. I think when I started, I was very, um, I, I was very adamant about building an agency without accounts, without yeah. any account level. And so really grounding the relationship with a partner, um, having that be between a creative producer um, or some agencies call that an integrated producer or what have yeah. you. Yeah who can kind of fill those roles of like accounts and project management, but also has some prowess in knowing how to produce creative and a creative director. So that duo with a, uh, with a, um, uh, with a partner over the years, I've learned that there's a role to have a strategist involved in those conversations as well. Um, and over the years, I've also been humble to learn what it means, uh, what accounts are really there to do. Right. And so, um, we still, we're still an agency that doesn't have an accounts layer to ourselves. Um, we're, we're definitely trying to figure out what is the best way to facilitate relationships with our partners, but also keep them close to the creatives that are doing the work or, or reduce the number of layers between them and the creatives. Um, yeah. But it's a constant guess and check because the, the needs of marketing are constantly changing and the amount of platforms that we have to anticipate and, and create stories for is constantly growing. Yeah. Mate, we, uh, we, we, missed, we missed a question that we probably should go back to. I mean, what made you want to start Bokeh? What was, what was the aha moment? Um, how did it come about? And, and um, when did you go about leaving Google to... Yeah, where where'd you get that confidence from yeah. to just leave Google and then go do this really crazy thing? I mean, cushy job, you had it all. Like, why 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 do such a crazy thing? You're in that position at 23. What made you uh jump ship? Want to jump ship? Yeah, you know, because when you're 23, you're you're really stupid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's uh, look. I mean, I I think the logic that I had back then is that you know if i could get a job at google once then i could again right i'm only 23 years old so that with that sort of mentality like i could already sort of release myself from a lot of the anxieties that people feel i also had the luxury of like i grew up in the bay area i was still living in the bay area google worked in the bay area so worse comes to worse i could just move back into my dad's house whatever <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, so I, I didn't have much I didn't have much to lose um, I think the other side of it is just knowing myself when I was in college I, I tried to do the internship thing as a lot of film students will do right and like especially like if you go to college in Hollywood you do internship after internship and I learned really quickly that I'm just not the type of personality to get people coffee and to just like take their yeah. shit so yeah. that automatically sort of predicated a direction for me. Uh, what, what, why do you say that though? What, what, what personality traits do you have that lead you to not want to sort of, I guess, serve others or, or, or work for people above you? I, I mean, I, I feel that I have a creative perspective worth like saying, and I'm not afraid to say it. And I want to say it. Like if you're creative sucks, then I'm going to tell you it sucks. If, yeah. Uh, and it's something that I still maintain, like I, I believe very strongly the best way to approach creative or any product or campaign is to approach it very much from the, as a consumer, right? Like not as a marketer or an advertiser. And I would like, would I actually buy this product? And if the answer is no, 
then you're going to have to figure out what are the selling points that are going to make you want to buy this product, right? Um, I, a lot of times, also think of, of my dad in that. Like, what could I use to convince my dad to buy this product? And having been raised in a Jewish family, like you really have to make a good argument about why you want to buy this product if you're going to spend yeah. money, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so, you know, I, I always think of those things in mind. And um, I guess going back to the question about why I started the agency or what is it in my personality, like I have an opinion. I wanted to voice that opinion. I didn't want to just like, you know, try to toe the line and, and climb the ladder. I, I'm impatient. I have ADHD. I'm just mm -hmm. naturally impatient. I'm, I'm naturally verbose. Um, and that can come off a little bit sometimes as abrasive. And so I knew that I, I might be better suited in a role that allowed me to have ownership. And, and being working at Google gave me the opportunity to take a lot of ownership. And so when it came to starting Bokeh, I did have a partner from film school who is actually kind of the opposite of me, which is a good leveler. You need that type of leveler. Whereas yeah. I can be bold and move forward like full speed ahead. He's the type to like pull me back and be like, yo, hold up, you know? Yeah. Uh, but uh, we had this partner. We both wanted to, to do films and, and, you know, in all honesty, like, the truth is Bokeh didn't start as a pure marketing agency. It started as kind of a video production company that did everything from weddings to surprise engagements to maternity videos, which are as strange as they may sound. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. What's a maternity video? <laughs> It's, it's, it's like a highlight reel for you when you're pregnant. It's like those, you know, pregnancy photos, but now imagine oh. it in video form and you have the person in a field and, and they're holding the field. <laughs> so, you know, you're trying to create contrasting elements. It's, it's a very sweet memory building thing. I look, yeah. I did anything to get a dollar at that time. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like it was, you know, but it's extremely humbling to go from like a $500 wedding video to now a $500,000 like campaign. Right? Yeah. To that transition over the course of, of a couple of years and, and to see Bokeh really find its niche in terms of building relationships with, with brands and companies, startups or whoever. Um, and, you know, I just, I applied the same vigor uh, and impatience. You know, I had the vigor of an intern, which is what you need to move up the ladder from an internship. But that yeah. combined with the impatience of I don't know, a kid with ADHD. And so I combined that vigor with the impatience and grew bokeh by building relationships with just the brands that I admired. There wasn't really a, let's start with some small startups and then hmm. and like, I was directly, we were directly working with Google. We were directly working with Airbnb. We were directly working with Apple. We were directly working with Instagram like there was no middle person in between and there was no sort of ramp up to get to that size of business I just reached out and built those relationships because I thought I had something to offer and, and how did you go about reaching these people and what was your pitch was it cold calling was it was it an email did you just go on the street and wait outside the Instagram office until the right person uh, walked out I mean uh, you know I am probably one of the biggest advocates for for LinkedIn that uh, there is. I've made so many 
um, like so many relationships. I've met so many people through LinkedIn and my pitch was less of a pitch as it was just sort of a very honest, you know, uh, with Instagram, it was like, Hey, I love the way you guys are, are forwarding up ads in Instagram. You're making it fit the feed. This was back when they were just introducing ads to the, the feed. They were being very selective with the mm. types of ads that went in there because they wanted it to feel very cohesive. And so I kind of, you know, I, I just had an honest conversation asking, asking them like, hey, I would love the opportunity to meet you in person and learn more about how you're building your ad platform and, and all of that. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to build a, an, a, uh, an agency myself and, you know, I would love to just get coffee and lunch and yeah. it started with nothing more than that. But obviously like once, once people give you their time, then it's not really a far, it's not really a far jump to, to give you their partnership, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and those conversations just grow. They go from a first conversation to, you know, and those conversations, because I'm such an ideas person, you know, they're, you know, I'm throwing out ideas and, and that's just how you build a relationship in general. Right. So I built relationships just by being humble and understanding where I wanted to grow as both a, a marketer or advertiser. Um, and, and, showing just a, a, an intense interest in, in the work that the person across from me was doing. What's, what's the advice for, for young people who, who feel the, kind of the same way? Like young people who want to start their own agency out there or young people who want to make the leap maybe from agency side into starting their own thing. Like, like I mean, you mentioned just getting coffee. Like are there some other tips that you can give people to kind of grind through that first first stage of business? Um, I mean, I think it's accepting the fact that it's going to be a grind um, is yeah. a big thing. Um, accepting the fact that advertising, you know, it doesn't matter what your prowess is in terms of how good your, how good your content is or how much promise it shows can help get you through the door. But it's only if like somebody has already opened the door for you. Right. And so you do need to have that per, at least for myself, that person to person interaction, I think is important. Um, at Bokeh, we, we really try to practice and promote two values, which we, which are hunger and humility, which I think is sort of like very much the basis of, of kind of how I approached growing us. You, you want to have the hunger to try new things, the hunger to be able to spit ideas out, you know, but humble enough to, you know, show interest in learning about, what somebody else, you know, what are the marketing problems that they're facing? What are the degrees of approvals that they have to go through trying to understand? And I think that was part of being at Google that I learned too, that it wasn't just a straight line to uh, agency gives you a proposal and then you just say yes or no, like, like a, um, like a Roman emperor, thumb up, thumb down. Like yeah. it goes through layers of approval and lots of layers of approval. And there's politics in between that. How do we present this to that person to get them on board? And then we have to get it to that person. And maybe we should catch that person on this day instead of this day. And Understanding, having empathy for the, our partners, having empathy for the client condition can only help deepen the relationship between you and them. 
Because ultimately, at least from my point of view, like you want to build a partnership with whoever you're working with. I want to be seen as an extension of their creativity and their creative selves, almost like their external creative agency. I want to help. Uh, I want to help them uh, discover the best creative, whether it comes externally or from us, or whether it comes internally from somebody on their team. I feel like my job is to help, like get that those ideas to come to the surface and then to help them build the capabilities to take it to the next step. So I think for, for a young person who is even considering doing what we did, which I would not, I would not suggest to anybody, this has been, hell. <laughs> uh, but if it is, it's just be hungry, be humble, yeah. reach out to as many people as you can try to learn as much as you can um, you know, take lunches. Uh, you know, here's the, here's the great thing. I asked a lot of people to lunch. I always offered to pay, but the great thing is they always just paid for me. <laughs> they, they might not now considering this information has been leaked to the public. <laughs> I was like, Oh, come over to Google or Hey, come over to Airbnb. We can grab lunch here. And then I would just get lunch. Right. Like, no, but, but put people in a position, you know, the thing about humanity, and I learned this while traveling abroad as well. The thing is like, uh, and the way that I was brought up, I was, I was brought up to believe, you know, humanity is dangerous and, and you got to be careful, lock your doors and all of that. But, but at the end of the day, if you ask people for a favor, a lot of times they're going to try to deliver for you, right? If you ask people for help person to person, they're going to try to help you. So if you ask people for advice, they'll probably, you know, give you some advice. Now you won't get a response from every message you send. I, I certainly don't. And I've also seen a strange uh, thing as my career has, has gone where the responses I used to be able to connect very easily with marketing managers or brand managers or those types. Now I have a harder time connecting with those types of people if I were to shoot a cold email. But if I shoot a cold email to a CMO, I'll be able to connect with them. Right. So it's a very strange, it's a very strange pivot. You've left one class and you've gone to a different stratosphere and now you're flying at 8,000 feet and like you can't see and like the people below just don't feel like they can like play on your level or what, what do you think it is? I have no idea what it is. Maybe it is a combination of that. Maybe it's, you know, people are busy. I, I don't know. Or Yeah you know, now, now we all get hit up on LinkedIn by everybody at once and everybody's trying to sell something and everybody. I think that's part of it too, is you get 50 LinkedIn in-mail messages a day and you're just like, oh, fuck off. And you can't. But being human and being genuine is, is such a virtue and, and don't oversell yourself, which is very easy for people to do and in, in who come from marketing or advertising to kind of get stuck in that mindset that you always have to be on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there was a really interesting thing you were talking about just just before, and that was being an extension of the client um, and kind of creating their creative vision. Now, that can kind of go a little bit too far sometimes. So, how do you walk the line between the client just, you know, being the hovering art director um, and not letting you do what you've got to do and and getting to the really creative good result? Um, no, I mean, you, you mentioned, I think for the most part, at least from the types of interactions and relationships that I've had, I've been lucky where the client hasn't been, although I have had, we have had some of those projects, but for the most part, the client hasn't been, the par our partners haven't been over domineering in trying to like 
get us to do their creative, right? Like mm. when it comes about bringing them, it's really just bringing them along in a more transparent way to make them feel like they're a part of the process, to almost give them the, the, the visage that they, they actually have a say in what's going on. But ultimately, we're guiding them through our creative the entire time, right? But it's giving visibility to things, right? It's giving visibility the same way you would in, in a traditional agency, right? Like you're going to have that client review talent. You're going to have that client review photographer options. You're going to have that client review art directions. It's the same thing. It's just a matter of just like how you, uh, at least for us, we make them feel like they're part of the table and part of the round table discussion that we would have with our creatives as opposed to presenting, right? And putting those options in front of them and just trying to make them make a decision. We want them to feel like they're part of a collaborative whole and uh, our partners have really sort of appreciated that, right? They've appreciated the ability that uh, sometimes like we're doing, we're doing a, a very quick direct response campaign right now for an at-home fitness company. It's a great time to be at-home fitness. Is it Peloton? No, it's not. It's not Peloton. It's for a, a startup called Tempo. Um, okay. you can, that's, that's a great plug for them. A uh, startup called tempo and and their whole thing it's actually really cool it's it's a screen they have a camera that's able to read 3d like you in space it can tell you yeah. when you're, when you're like doing a a rep incorrectly right oh, wow. uh it's, a have, it's essentially it's essentially like personal training if you've yeah. ever if you've heard of like tonal or mirror those are some other brands that are in this space it's like that except the technology behind it is is much better Oh, oh, Vince has just brought up the website. So it's an actual like physical mirror that is filming you and giving you like real time feedback on your real time feedback and data. And, um, and we helped them with their launch on social. Um, we, we helped fix, uh, their Anthem video in, in some small ways that another agency just didn't, didn't get it to the finish line on. Um, Uh and, uh, but, but what I was saying is like, what, you know, they're marketed since they're such a young team, a small team, and they need to turn this around fast. They appreciate the fact that like, if they need their head of marketing, if he just wants to like show up at the studio and and sit beside our editor and, and kind of jam on it, like he can do that and he can feel like he's part of the, he's part of the process. Um, And so it's a balance, right? We want to take people along. You want to guide a horse to water at all Mm. times. Right. Um, it's sort of guiding the horse to water without letting them realize that they're a horse. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. They can feel like they're the rider, but I mean, it's in all sincerity because sometimes in those sessions, the best ideas do come from our, our, our partners. Right. Yeah. And so by yeah. building a collaborative space for it, we allow ourselves the opportunity to take those good ideas and then have them influence the creative we're already doing. And we try to stay egoless uh, or remove ourselves to, to understand that those ideas can come from anywhere. I'm really interested in how you make that process feel collaborative and make them feel part of the journey. Do you do you do workshops or is it just shooting the shit over lunch? Um, How do you make the client feel involved? It's a lot of shooting the shit. Um, <laughs> yeah. It is a lot of shooting the shit, even in meetings. 
Um, I don't know if you have or seen on Netflix, Love is Blind, um, or, or heard of that phenomenon. It was a huge yeah. like, dating show over here that came up. But I've literally started meetings with Lyft where we spent the first 25 minutes of that meeting talking about Love is Blind and just how much we love uh, uh, Cameron and... and, and, and <laughs> Shout outs to Cameron. Yeah, <laughs> shout out, shout out to them. Hashtag, like that, like hashtag, like my life. I wanted to be like that. Jesus, uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, I mean, it is. It is a lot of just. Ca- I mean, it's we we love to casualize the relationship, right? Mm-hmm. To to we love to uh, partner instead of present. Right. We, we love to come to the table and discuss ideas together. Now, that doesn't mean we're not presenting stuff. Right. But it, it kind of just opens up the conversation. Um, yeah. Of course, every client, every partner is different. Right. Th- you know, this type of workflow has worked incredibly well for for West Coast companies, Silicon Valley based companies mm-hmm. and, and sort of when we're interfacing with people that are of our generation, like millennials. Yeah. Um, but we've worked with we've worked with older um you know more um i don't i don't know more experienced or traditional companies as well you know that are maybe uh located further east or even internationally right um and we've had to button up a little bit and we don't get as much um of the shooting of the shit Uh, (laughs) um of course, when we meet in person, that's when people really kind of understand things. You know, we, when we did a campaign for, for Instagram, which was this global campaign that involved a lot of business partners, we always had to make sure, and we always did make sure that we were buttoned up when we were on calls with Illy Cafe, with L'Oreal in Paris, uh, with Mulberry in, in England. But as soon as we get on the ground, what really endears people to us is just how human and how relatable and how casual we are. And that's almost a breath of fresh air. They almost really appreciate the fact that they, they, have the, they, they can see what we're doing. They, they're kind of part of the production, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I still communicate with those people, you know, who, who have gone on into other roles to become the chief brand officer of this or the, the, chief, cre- uh, the chief marketing officer of that. Um, but like, it ends up you're not building relationships with brands as much as you're building relationships with people. Hmm. Uh, I have seen, though, obviously, as, as our company, as our, our agency has grown, as the scope of the type of creative that we're asked to partake in has grown, uh, there has definitely been sort of a thirst or, or, or a desire to, to know who that kind of guiding light creative is in the room, right? So I think there is a role for both. I think, though, it is very much important, at least for the way that we do it, is when we bring that creative in the room or whoever that is, a lot of times it's still just myself and my partner, Doug, um, when we do come in the room, we don't try to act any different. We are confident in what we put forward, but we're also, you know, uh, we also listen. We, we also, you know, we're, we're not trying to, to kind of like have people kiss the ground beneath our feet. Right. And it's great to be in a position where people respect, because that's essentially what we wanted, right? Like I've always been hungry for creative discretion to be in a position where people look at us like we know what the fuck we're doing is, is, is fun. Uh, 
but uh, at the same time, you know, I, I still feel that our job is, is to, whether it's with our creative team or with our partners, to guide them through the process and to help get the best ideas to come. So if they see us as, as, a, um, uh, as sort of an authority to be able to help them get there, that's great. If we can give them confidence based on who we are and how we talk and, and, and all of that, that's great. Um, but I think what grows a relationship from there on out is that sort of casual ability to to bring them into the collaboration i guess i want to ask what are the big tech players you mentioned lyft before and google and apple what are they looking for in a boutique agency i mean it depends on it depends on the need but ultimately people are looking for somebody to make the problems go away yeah and that's it right and somebody who is going to have empathy for where they're at Right. And what I mean by that is it is always a balance between uh, timelines and budgets and, you know, a number of needs and who are we going to work with that's going to help us thread that needle. Right. And um, it's challenging. Uh, I think if you've never worked internally at a company, you don't necessarily realize that, you know, Google Maps has a different budget than Google. And everybody has a different budget and that's sort of humbling too. And if you can show that empathy for your partner on the other side, it makes a huge difference to the relationship. And so I think ultimately, especially on these smaller campaigns and projects, um, or even, even, it could even be global campaigns. We've done that too. People are looking, our partners are looking to us to help them make the problems go away and to do so in a way that's, going to cause the least amount of nail biting. Um, And it's almost, you know, we've, we've been in the position where we fixed the work from a shy day, right? We've been Uh, in a position where we fixed the work from some large agencies that, that are very, and I respect and I admire and I look up to, but where the, the, the executives have literally turned to us and said like, what can we do to fix this? Right. Yeah because they don't have another million dollars to spend and they don't have another three weeks to spend on it and they just need a quick solution and it helps to have somebody that can like, is willing to mobilize and sit right next to you and do it. That's, uh, and so, so, you know, what they're looking for, we don't sell ourselves as a cheap agency. We don't sell ourselves as, as a fast agency, but we understand the speed in which our clients or partners need to move. And so we empathize with that and we want to find solutions to help them get to the finish line. And so sometimes that means us being very creative with how budgets are built. Um, You know, um, sometimes this means us like being willing to sprint alongside them. But I think that's also a refreshing breath of air is to, to know as a partner that the people you've hired are sprinting with you to try to figure things out at the yeah. same speed at, in the same timing, right? Like you don't necessarily have to be as buttoned up because you don't have time to be as buttoned up to really write up the brief. You have somebody that you can bring in that's going to help you define the brief, even if it's not written yet. Right. Yeah. Um, that's what I've found over the years. And, and that's what I've found be um, really attractive to at least the people that we've partnered with. Sure. Um, I, I'd, I'd love to talk more about some of the work you're most proud of um, that you've done at Bokeh and some of the campaigns and, and going into detail and, and the minutiae around them. Um, well, I, you know, it's, 
I think one of our proudest campaigns uh, is we helped Airbnb launch the world of trips, which is essentially was the, the largest product expansion in Airbnb's history. That's when they introduced the idea of experiences. Yeah, of course. They refreshed their app and, and had the itinerary in it. And, you know, when I'm talking about like us coming in to try to figure out, you know, how to help fix what Shiat Day did, uh, that was the project where that was, huh. that happened. So what did um, Shiat Day do or didn't do? They just didn't. So Shia Day shot such a breadth of incredible content, like incredible. They've done, they did a whole bunch of incredible work. So I'm not knocking the creative and I'm not knocking all of that. But I think, you know, at least from what I was exposed to, uh, there was a little too much like Silicon Valley Kool-Aid in the sense Mm -hmm. of like, let's overhumanize everything. And at the mm-hmm. end of the day, we're launching a, a new product. We're launching a huge product expansion. And so the humanizing element is not what they missed. It was the connecting that to the actual product experience that they didn't have a, a strong cohesive thread on. And so that's a lot of the work that we did was create a lot of what we called functional marketing, functional brand and product marketing, where we actually kind of took a lot of the work we combined that with animation, we combined that with the app, and we built much more cohesive stories that were able to connect the in-app experience with the, uh, the real-world experience in a much stronger way. And we were able to do that um, very, very, uh, very quickly. Um, this was, from start to finish, the whole campaign was five, five weeks, but, but the, the video that was used to announce the campaign um, at Airbnb Open by Brian Chesky, the CEO, that yeah. was done in two days. Wow. That was, that was a midnight, and that was an add-on. That wasn't part of the original scope, right? <laughs> um, that was an add-on. And so, you know, what I'm most proud of is our ability to sprint, our ability to work alongside our partners at Airbnb, our ability to find yeah. creative solutions, our ability to build a campaign that was optimized for truly optimized for mobile. We built everything for a vertical environment as well before. Mm-hmm. It's sort of funny. You now have companies coming up, whatever. I can't even remember the name of that Katzenberg, Meg Whitman company that is focused purely on mobile and like, oh, everything should be vertical. And we're like, you know, we did this, we did this shit three years ago. We thought yeah. like, everything <laughs> vertical, right? Like, like, you know, it seems stupid, but people can't be, you know, can't be uh, uh, bothered to turn their phone 90 degrees anymore to view something. Yeah. So we wanted to make that easy. Um, so we built the campaign and everything we did for that. Uh, it sent me to Cuba. I saw the opportunity to go to Cuba. I took it. Um, <laughs> Didn't have time for permits, smuggled in a quarter million dollars worth of equipment. That was... That. Equipment. Oh, wow, yeah. Equipment. <laughs> for the yeah. folks at home, Vince is air quoting. Very strong. Equipment, Very yes. Um, it was... Uh, but I think... So, so that campaign in and of itself, I'm so proud of. I'm also proud of how much the agency was doing at the time. Yeah. While that campaign was going on, so alongside doing that campaign, we were also uh, we were also executing Instagram's largest B two B global campaign 
at that time, right? Like, um, and so we had concurrent productions for Airbnb and Instagram going um, in different countries and in, in, in three different countries at once. And this is for an agency that at the time was only five people. So it, it was just an incredible feat of endurance and creativity and finding solutions and making problems go away. And I think that time was probably the most stressful, the least amount of sleep, but also, you know, one of the most sort of prodigious periods for us. And it really helped us build the type of relationships that, that, that we, we still foster today. David, I'd just like to pedal back a little bit because you said something super interesting about Silicon Valley and drinking the Kool-Aid and over-humanizing everything. I just want to know where that trend came from um, because from our perspective as strategists, that's our job is, is to humanize things and, and, and to see the campaign from uh, the consumer's perspective. Why has why over-humanizing become a bad thing? Um, I mean, it, it's, it's just become, you know, when it's not that overhumanizing is a bad thing. It's just the way that it starts to play itself out aesthetically and visually, right? And that in itself, that motif has now become so redundant and so overplayed that it, it almost, it, it's, it's not fresh anymore, right? It doesn't yeah. get, it's, it's, it's a joke now. It's a stereotype. Um, like not everything can be humanized. And I think Silicon Valley, we try to do that with everything. It doesn't matter if you're a B2B sales platform or if you're Instagram, right? Yeah. Like trying to find the humanity in it. And some things yeah. just don't play well to that, right? Not everything should be done with a floating organic camera. So that's sort of what I mean. Like this lifestyle aesthetic has become sort of overplayed. Even seeing it like to your, your brief that we'll talk about, I'm sure a little later on with the light phone, yeah. like that entire thing is just lifestyle, organic, uh, like humanized bullshit. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I can't wait for that, that section of the pod. Um, hey, but it, it, you, you also mentioned like having five people and doing two global campaigns. How do you keep, how do you keep your staff motivated to keep going in that situation? I think it's the drive and the trust that our partners put in us to actually execute that, right? Because it's not like we're posturing ourselves and telling people that we're like a 50-person agency, like, and it's not like we're lying to them and, and we're saying that all of our resources are on Airbnb when we're actually split across three different projects and, and different continents at once, right? Um, so like we have our, we had, we had a part of our team in Airbnb's headquarters in San Francisco while I was, um, just dancing around Mexico and Mexico city, and then hopping over to Cuba for, for a weekend to, to get footage for Airbnb in between a shoot for Instagram. Um, I, I, I think just there's, there's something about momentum. And I think we've all felt it too. Like when things are going, when engines are revving, when you're just in it, like, there's, it's just like a great feeling. You just keep pushing forward. It's mm. sort of, it's as you, once you build that momentum, it just sort of takes you. And so that's kind of what it felt like. We were just on a ride, right? We were just going, we were just going day to day. You know, I think I heard, I wasn't here because I was, I was somewhere in Latin America at the time filming um, and overseeing a production. But I think I heard that like part of my team slept over at Airbnb for like three straight nights. Like, (laughs) But I mean, that's the type of, you know, those are the type of sacrifices and the type of moves that, you know, 
when the chief marketing officer sees that the same person that he saw working last night is sleeping on the couch in the morning, they were like, that's really telling you something about the ethos of, of the partner that you're working with, that they're in this more than just fulfilling the terms of an SOW. They're in this to create the best work. And Mm -hmm. those are the types of people that you want to hire. Those are the types of people that you want to work with anyway, right? The, the, the people that seriously are driven by the work that they're doing, not necessarily just the hours, uh, getting their hours away. So I think it was very much a self-fulfilling thing that once we were in it, like we were just inherently motivated. Yeah, we sort of come full circle because we asked you this question earlier about how you, how, how you hire when you're 23 and you said, you know, that process has changed and, and, and that's changed as you've gotten older. Um, I guess maybe we can end this part of the pod with this question is how, how has that changed and what do you look for in a person now that, that you're in a different position? I think, I think being young um, and especially when we first started the agency, we didn't put as much uh, impetus on experience or agency experience or advertising experience because we had none. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So like that didn't seem like, you know, something that we would need to bring in to the agency. It wasn't something that I prioritized myself. Like I, I thought that I always wanted to find that hungry person that would you know, sleep over the night or, or work, you know, whatever. But what I've learned over the years is that you really can't trade in experience. It doesn't have to be a lot of experience, but somebody who knows what it's like to work in those trenches, somebody who knows what it's like to, to work opposite of a client, and especially on the creative end, who knows what it means to put forward like agency caliber creative, um, that's something that is not easy to grow, especially if you have no agency experience to grow it. And so I think that's what I've learned, right? Like I want to always hire people that are better than me because if I hire people that are better than me, it's going to free my time and it's going to free my partner's time. Our goal has to be to lift ourselves up and we lift ourselves up by empowering those under us. But we have Mm -hmm. to make sure that the people that we're empowering under us are actually capable of being able to wield that power, to wield that ownership and to run with it. Because if they're not, if they need handholding, if they need a little bit of help, then that's going to take away our time. And the only people, at least at this stage of our agency, that we can have patience to grow are the founders of the company itself, right? We can have patience in each other to continue to grow into our roles, for me to continue to grow as a leader, as a CEO, for my partner, Doug, to continue to grow as a chief creative officer. That's where the patience to grow comes from. That's where the handholding comes from. We can hold each other's hands uh, as we grow. But we really need to make sure that the people under us are capable of taking the reins for us. Otherwise, we're always going to get dragged down. And I think that was that has been some of the, the biggest lessons that I've learned. And it's also one of the hardest lessons because we're not just talking about positions. We're talking about people and we're talking about people that may have been the right people when we hired them. But as we're growing, as the scopes in, uh, of our projects are, are moving, they may no longer be the right fits. And for us like that, that is, that is some very hard decisions that have to be made because you truly care about these people. You, you did those sleepless nights. You were in the yeah. 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 Well, David, if you ever need two capable, or I guess semi-capable strategists, 
you can always uh, reach reach out to uh, <laughs> to, to Vincent Max. The two koalas <laughs> getting up in the, in the in the morning to jump on the pods. We're we're always here. Now it's time to put your talents to the test. Now it's time to give a scenario to our guests. So what would be a strategy? Break it down. Let's see how you do it. Problem insight, strategy, and solution. Um, let's see how we go. Okay. Do the dumb thing. Light phone 2. The smartphone, once widely considered to be the coolest innovation of the 21st century, is now considered to be one of the most destructive. No matter where you go, or whatever it is that you're doing, carrying a smart device in your pocket almost guarantees that your activity has been tracked, logged, packaged, and sold to a nefarious advertiser in the big, dark world of the internet. But the nasty behavior doesn't stop there. Behavioral design techniques such as well-timed notifications, social feedback loops, and reward mechanics have addicted an entire generation to the mini-casino in their pockets. And for what? It's simple. The more time you spend with on your phone, the more exposure available for advertisers. This gives new meaning to what you own ends up owning you. Introducing the dumb phone phenomena. The light phone... Oh, it's 11. It's the light phone 11. It's one two. such phone. The light phone 2 is one such phone. It peels back all of the most necessary functions of communication to offer a manipulation-free communication alternative to their users. The phone value lies in not what you get, but what you don't. This phone has no feeds, social media advertisements, news, or email. It's a phone designed to limit your reliance on phones. So David, given you're a former disciple of the biggest tech company on the planet, the almighty Google, we thought what better brief for you to tackle than to go against your every instinct and create a campaign that convinces people to do the smart thing by doing a dumb one. And that's to pick up the light phone too. Your task was to devise a campaign that convinces 500,000 people in the USA to make the Light Phone 2 the number one phone of choice. We gave you a budget of a $1.5 million in media. That's a lot. That's a lot for a son of a pitch hypothetical Oh, it's America budget. we're talking about yeah. here. That's are not they, much for America. Are they Australian dollars? Because that's not many Australian dollars <laughs> at the moment. Our exchange rate is shithouse. And a 350k production. David, how'd you go? Oh my goodness! Well, this was a challenge, and so was uh, also the 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 piss format. At- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the taking the piss format. Do you know that expression? Have you heard that? I I learned it through this brief, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, I mean, honestly, like the first thing that I want is trying to articulate the the, the problem here, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I think there's the sort of the humanist and everything in your intro really points to this sort of humanistic, like, look, we're getting disconnected from each other sort of yeah. thing. Like, uh, we're getting bombarded with advertising. We're, we're getting so separated and we just, we need to separate ourselves from sort of technology. Right. So there's that part of it. Right. But in all honesty, I, I kind of think that whole idea and that's what's on the light phone to website right now really speaks to it. I really believe that's kind of bullshit. Um, You're talking about the millennial generation. You're talking about Generation Z, which is right now what the branding and the the visual aesthetic seems to be pointed to. And you're talking about two generations of consumer that were raised on digital. One that was completely raised on on digital and using digital as an extension of their physical selves, which is Generation Z, right? And millennials were all about uh, convenience and, and comfort and ease use of ease um, between the digital world and the physical world. So 
outside of sort of hipster, um, sort of like unconformist, sort of a very niche group of, of these generations, I didn't know if that's the right target to go after. Yeah. So then I started to try to think of like, what are the other value propositions of this? Well, technology is really, really complicated for my grandparents and for my dad. <laughs> And there's a lot of channels, there's a lot of platforms, and it is so awkward to see your parents on Facebook. So why don't we just get them the fuck off of Facebook, right? right? And for them, it's just, it just, it, they don't want, you know, you're 50, 60 something years old, you don't want to have to figure out how to communicate on all these channels anyways. The simplification of all of this allows you to communicate with the friends and family that really you hold the most dear, right? So I started to think of it in that standpoint. Then also the practicality of it, right? The phone I saw was $350, which is a really big difference than what an iPhone is for $1,200, right? Yeah. Or what have you, right? $350 and $30 a month. That is a huge difference than paying $1,200 for an iPhone and then paying another $100 a month because you need your text and talk and your data. So for me, that was where I thought the winning value propositions were. And I might propose really reinventing the way that you advertise it and even your target audience. Because if, if, relaunching the poem with Steph Curry couldn't make yeah. me a Bay Area person who loves the Warriors, who loves Steph, like make me be like, I see a purpose for this in my life as a yeah. Yeah. This this might be showing my age, but what's the palm? Oh yeah. Oh shit. Uh, yeah, the the palm pilot, the personal computer. Blackberry? Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, I'm with you. This is the this is like the precursor to the iPhone and all of that, right? Mm. And it it couldn't survive, um, not even with Steph Curry. And then they tried to bring it back. I, I believe it was Palm. I, I hope I'm correct because I kept saying that brand name. But like they kept they they tried to make that in between device. And if they and they tried to enlist a, a big name athlete to do it, right? Um, yeah. And that doesn't make me want to buy it anymore. And I'm not saying that there isn't a utility for this type of device, right? Like I can easily, I can easily say that like, oh man, I'm inundated with emails and messaging and all of that. And I think there, you know, there is something to the fact that they're leaning on talk and text since probably about 80 or 90% of our time on our phones are spent in some type of messaging platform. But that's the thing too. It's not just text. We're talking about Facebook Messenger. You're talking about Instagram DMs. You're talking about WhatsApp. You're talking about um, WeChat. You're talking about a whole bunch of messaging platforms. And if you're younger, of a younger generation, you're going to be more in tune about communicating through all of those platforms, which is why if 80 or 90% of our time on mobile phones are used uh, in some type of messaging platform, but not necessarily specified to just text, I don't know yeah. if this is the winning proposition for the audience that their visuals seem to be going for. So what I would be then proposing is let's lean into the practicalities, right? My dad loves the practicalities. My dad installed solar onto our house. He didn't do it because he's an environmentalist. He did it because he could save some money, right? Yeah. He could sell his electricity back to the electricity company. 
So, yeah. so let's lean into the practicalities, right? Let's also lean into the fact that like technology is hard. There's too much noise. Let's just simplify it, right? Like I'm, I'm 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. I just want to talk to my grandkids on the phone. I just want to be able to like talk to my friends. Or I want to just shoot a text or something like that, right? Yeah. Let's lean into that. And then, you know, okay, how do you sell it? So I might try to see what type of deal I can make um, with, with an aging sort of personality, right? An aging star. They may not be in as many films or anything anymore, but perhaps, perhaps I can get them to keep them busy into sort of a commercial, right? Like I'm talking about like who is today's like Archie Bunker or like Walter Matthau type of person, right? Like maybe once Bernie Sanders actually leaves the campaign, there may be an opportunity <laughs> to Bernie Sanders because he's the exact type of person. Yeah. Like he's the type of voice that could complain about like, like all of the noise, you know, and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, that was an amazing impression. <laughs> is it a phone? Or it, I don't know. I'm not good at doing. <laughs> I'm, better, I'm better at doing an impression of my Jewish mother than I am of being <laughs> Bernie Sanders, right? But you know, it's like you get like an Alan Arkin, maybe. Sure, know? someone who's old but also at the same time progressive. Yeah, Kathy Griffin or a Bill Maher, you know. But it's like I'm talking about. You want that sort of like older yeah. personality that like Betty White type of person that can really like sell this. And then you kind of make, if you've seen, and I, it wouldn't be the same type of thing, but it's the same type of enduring thing. If you've seen those snicker ads, like you're not you and you're hungry. Right. Yeah. And uh, they, you know, it's, it's, and I always loved those ads because they, you know, they did have like a Betty White in that, in that, yeah. in those ads. Right. Like you're not you and you're hungry. And so, I think having one of those older personalities sell it in a very comedic way builds up a sense of nostalgia that a generation above, above myself would, would really like endear them. And perhaps through that, we can create sort of the value proposition. Of, um, we, we can really sell that value proposition of like, this is cheaper, this is simpler, and it gives you exactly just what you need. For me, like, you know, everybody wants to make a social media play or an influencer play, but for a phone that's trying to disconnect you from social media to advertise it on social media just seems completely disingenuous to the brand. And yeah. I'm really not about that. And I also think millennials and Gen Z, which are really brand and values driven, would catch on to that and be like, the fuck are you trying to sell me? So, yeah. you know, for, so for me, I, I think you kind of have to retarget it to an older audience that just wants to simplify their life and get back to kind of communicating in a more direct way. So does that influence what sort of channels you show up in? You, you appear in more traditional old school channels like, like radio or, or maybe like you know, print or what other channels would, would be ideal for this, for this strategy? You know, this is what, what is difficult with the media budget that you gave and especially doing it in the United States because if we're yeah. aiming towards that older demographic, now we're talking about radio, we're talking about print, uh, mm. we're talking about television, right? Yeah. Perhaps you can do, you know, you, we can do ads via sort of streaming television, right, on, on some platforms that that, that generation may in encounter so if they use the, the cnn app or, or the fox news sort of app right um yeah. on on their streaming television perhaps we can set up ads through there um and then also more maybe direct 
sales, right? Like this is where having partnerships with the, the mobile carriers um, becomes very important because you want those salespeople inside of Verizon. You want to make sure that they have sales collateral in there. So maybe in-store sales collateral becomes an important piece sure. of this puzzle. Surely you just get Fox News to start beating the light phone tube uh, drum and, and saying, yeah, and getting old people on that way. You know, once Donald Trump loses the White House, hope to God, uh, he would be a perfect salesperson for this. He is, <laughs> he is one of the best people that I have ever seen sell people on absolute bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think he's such a good salesman? Uh, Not to get too off, to, off topic, <laughs> but yeah. Honestly, they should be teaching. They should be teaching um, college courses on Donald Trump, especially for marketing and advertising, um, mm. and and the work that his campaign manager. I've met Brad Parscale, and I remember I met him in Lisbon, and uh, uh, he was the digital strategist um, during the 2016 campaign. Now he is the 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 campaign, the main campaign lead for 2020, and I met him in yeah. Lisbon. At campaign and I remember talking to him and uh, he's a nice guy uh, I remember talking to him and say hey I I disagree with absolutely everything that you did and said and I think that it is like abysmal and evil and disgusting but that was a master class of digital advertising and like well I've, I've never seen anything like that you guys yeah. that was incredible and he yeah i mean he was just very smitten he's like oh my god like that you don't know how much that means to me <laughs> it's just so we don't have to agree but the fact that you respect the work means a lot to me <laughs> and, yeah. and so um but yeah i mean why is he why is he so effective i mean what he just realized is that we like if you flood uh, it's it's more than just like you know bad PR is still PR type of thing. Like he just yeah. like if you if you flood the cycle with quotes and news and things that like nobody knows what to focus on, and if nobody knows what to focus on, right, then you can immediately start people to like you can make people question whether or not anything is real. Mm -hmm. He has this ability to make the make whatever is real or factual unreal just by uh just by really saturating um the feed saturating the market with noise which makes yeah. people just want to turn out which makes people question what to believe they don't know what to believe anymore and when you don't know what to believe anymore then you go towards an authority and he can be that authority he is that authority for 30 percent of this country um, yeah but the, the question, question is, can he, can he, can he be, be that authority, authority for the, the light phone? phone? Well, I definitely think there's a campaign in uh, spell check for Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> certainly uh, with the tweets of Kefefe, oh, yeah. you know, you could do... Grammarly, do Grammarly could that. jump on that one for sure. Yeah, focus on what matters, like your spelling. Yeah, that would actually be amazing. Uh, focus on what matters, like coronavirus tests. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this got dark, guys. No, the light phone, the light phone, though, yeah. I mean, I, I think that 
you know, maybe a guerrilla marketing tactic, maybe direct mail tactics in specific mm. markets. We want to test market by market. Maybe we want to focus on markets that tend to, to run a bit older or a bit more traditional. Um, there's less millennials in the Midwest now. They've been all moving out to cities like San Francisco and Austin and Denver and New York City. And those, those are, you know, that belt of people. So maybe there's something there in, in advertising in those sort of hubs um, yeah. in direct mail. They may be actually cheaper to advertise advertise in so uh -huh. perhaps we can get more for for month, uh, bang for our buck uh, same thing in advertising maybe in the south or something like that where we can sell people on sort of the practicality play of this um, and uh, and where it's going to be cost effective for them too right yeah. uh, because markets like New York City or San Francisco or Los Angeles are going to be incredibly expensive for us to try to advertise in. So we may want to take a much more like targeted approach in, in choosing um, where this demographic lives and where they may be most amenable to a more practical option for their cellular, their mobile plan. Yeah. I wonder if there's a an opportunity in um for the creative to actually also talk to people with older parents because that must be a huge pain point. People trying to figure out, like trying to work with their mom or their you mean dad. doing the genius bar for your uh, own parents and doing the genius bar thing for your own parents and just how frustrating that experience is. Surely you just say to those people, save yourself the time and just give them a light phone and they'll be sweet. Oh, I mean, if you're talking about the type of creative you can do, there's definitely a play in telling that sort of story, right? Like the story of, of the millennial who gets called every day about yeah. like, how do I send the text? David, David, why don't you call me? I don't use Instagram, David. Why is <laughs> David? <laughs> that's pretty much all my conversations with my mom like, like and we you know we spend the first 20 minutes of every call having her chastise me about why i don't call yeah, yeah. amazing yeah, yeah. I, think I, I don't know what to do with this email why can't they just pick up the phone uh so maybe there's a play in that and then you can make this you know you can play on the angst of being sort of the the son or the daughter yeah. or the parent or grandparent who's trying to stay in touch and their their intentions are good but they're also annoying the shit out of you in the process um or there's just the play and visually just showing and that's where it's like oh you get that sort of like you know that sort of like Alan Arkin type of character, that sort of Walter Matthau type of character, and you just see them jumbling with a device and just like, yeah. just like not knowing what they're doing or they accidentally like they send a pr what's supposed to be a private sort of like tweet or yeah. a private message and they make it public on, on Facebook. Yeah. And then yeah. just like, oh my God, everybody now thinks I'm a racist. Whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, so, David, so I guess, guess this, this is now part of the show. If we can ask you for permission, if we can sort of take this strategy and, and go to Lightphone and say, hey, hey, guys, maybe you need to rethink, rethink your marketing a little bit. Maybe we can, uh, you know, do you want to go 95, 5%? In the in this in this sort of uh, in this sort of project, when we sell this in, uh, we'll use Bokeh as our creative partner. <laughs> we, we promise. Oh, I mean, absolutely. If you want to, you want to give them my candid thoughts on, on <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would, uh, you know, I would love 
to hear some of the metrics of their performance. Maybe I'm completely wrong, right? I'm working off of no metrics, no nothing in terms of yeah. knowing what their sales to date are. But you want to take this, run with it, tell them that I think it's a completely counterproductive idea, do it. Let's figure <laughs> out how to make their idea something palatable for everyone. Just, just one more thing uh, to, to touch on about this subject because definitely dopamine fasting is like the new trend in silicon valley so i would i would assume that people are disconnecting and they are just a bit tired of facebook i know all my friends frequently talk about how they deleted facebook app or deleted instagram only to have it back in in three weeks i'm sure there is something to the uh to the light phone concept but no, maybe no, there, yeah. like i said there's nothing it is completely it is completely valid the criticism that this this product comes out of right like we're all yeah. trying to learn especially like, you know, millennials that, that we were raised on, on, we still remember an analog world and now yeah. we're in this, sort of this new world and we're trying to figure out what is a healthy dose of digital, what is healthy for us. So there is a sense for that, right? But you're talking about the light phone now in terms of capabilities where like, I don't know how they, ha I guess they're announcing a taxi capability or something, but like I need to be able to hail a Lyft or an Uber right? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know how to read a map anymore, right? Yeah. Like, how many people know actually how to read a paper map? And so, like, yes, we want to figure out, like, uh, ways to better balance our, our digital and, and physical lives and, and to not be so addicted to phones and feeds. But can you completely strip everything that a smartphone has now yeah. and convince somebody that that's a life worth living. And that might be actually more difficult than, than you think. The idea of divorcing yourself from Facebook is relatively yeah. easy. But ask that same person if they're willing to divorce themselves from Google Maps or Apple mm, Maps. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, not so easy. Yeah. Oh, well, I think that's that's probably the perfect place to end it. Where would we end up without direction? Um, yeah. But before we go, David, is there anything you want to you want to plug or anything you want to you want to say before before we finish up? Um, God, I'm not the best at plugs. I mean, I would just say, like, if you're interested in learning more about the work that we do, I mean, you can check out Bokeh um, or uh, Bokeh.agency. Uh, yeah. no.com just bokeh.agency and bokeh is spelled b-o-k-e-h um but uh but other than that uh no i mean i'm i'm pretty satisfied you guys have listened to my voice for quite a while <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's been fun, man. Than most people <laughs> and we loved every second it's been of great it. it's been great Maybe you check up in a in a year or so from now when you're running uh, the biggest uh, tech agency slash creative company in America. Well, we'll see what happens, guys. I mean, hopefully one of these days, uh, like I said, I have family and friends down in Sydney and in Australia, and one of these days we'll be allowed to fly again. Yeah. And we can do this thing in person. Cool. <laughs> sounds good, but you got to bring your mother. She sounds amazing. <laughs> My goodness, are you sure you want to open up Pandora's box? <laughs> 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 Thank, Thank you so, so much, much, David. It was a pleasure. You're so skinny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Awesome. Oh, cool. Well, I guess we'll end it there. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you, man. Uh, so Thanks, guys. Pitch. 
Yeah, this is something you don't want to miss. Uh-huh. Interviews with creatives and the best strategists. All the top in Australia who steady making moves. Uh-huh. The podcast that puts you right in the pitch room. Yeah, professionals in this market. Uh, time to get it started. Uh, give us some complex problems. So let's see how you can solve it. Tune in with some Aussies. I bet you can't resist. Yeah, yeah, get it hyped. This is Son of a Pitch. Dylan.